0: We have been preaching through the gospel of Mark. And this morning we are in uh, Mark chapter 6. And a message that I call the problem and peril of hardened hearts. The problem and the peril of hardened hearts. Mark chapter 6 and verse 1. Then he went out from there and came to his own country. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come... He began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and among his own relatives and in his own house. And now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Our passage this morning has Jesus returning to the small village or small town of Nazareth. This town was situated on about 50 acres. It was home to about 500 people. I grew up in a town of about 500, but it was a sprawling metropolis spread out over about a square mile. Uh, This one was only 40 acres, about a quarter of a mile square, and had 500 people living in it. Uh, For whatever reason, the town was looked down on by the Jews When Nathanael was called by his brother Philip to come and see Jesus of Nazareth, his response was, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? But the fact is, many times Jesus was referred to by this title, Jesus of Nazareth. Most notably, it would be written on his cross as a way of identifying the crime for which he was being executed. And Pilate wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, there it is, the King of the Jews. That was their verdict, and this was the reason for his execution. But thank God that verdict was overturned. And not only by his resurrection, but then later, Acts chapter 3 and verse 6, Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There it is. Rise up and walk. When he was called before the council to give an account for what he would done, what would he say? Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him, does this man stand before you whole. Jesus of Nazareth. You'll find that expression all over the New Testament. And so this was the city in which Jesus would spend the most of his life. Uh, we know that uh, after Herod tried to kill him as an infant, they ended up going down to Egypt for a while. So we would say that he would spend at least 25 or so years of his life growing up in this little small town, about 500 people, despised town. He would grow up in the synagogue, no doubt being faithful in his attendance. And now here he is going back to his hometown where he grew up, Jesus of Nazareth, the title that he carried around with him. We had seen an earlier visit in Luke chapter 4 that Luke records, Mark doesn't mention, but Luke recorded, recorded it and the end result of that was that the people were so angry as he taught in that synagogue in his hometown where he grew up, and they were so angry with him that they actually tried to throw him over a cliff. And so Jesus had to leave Nazareth and lived in Capernaum for a while. But now our text records this last visit that he goes back and makes, and there he is in the synagogue again on the Sabbath. Prophesied as it was in the Old Testament that he would be called a Nazarene. This last effort being made then to reach these people. The people who grew up around his family, his friends, his neighbors, his former customers. One last time to visit, we'd call it his home church, his home synagogue. Those of you who've been here, we've gone on a journey in Mark chapter 5. And what a journey it's been. I mean, Jesus was doing amazing things. We saw him calm the storm and demonstrate his power over the creation. He was met by that legion, that army of demons when he uh, arrived in the country of the Gadarenes. Uh, uh, probably 2,000 demons at least that he cast into a herd of swine. And, and, and then he, he came back across the sea and he healed, uh, raised Jairus, his daughter, From the dead, we saw last week, he also took the time to heal that woman who touched just the fringe, just a tassel on his garment. I mean, amazing things have been happening in this incredible ministry all around Galilee. Crowds of people were following him everywhere, throngs of people, so that he had to, when they was teaching by the sea, he'd have to keep a boat handy because they'd be pressing him out into the water and have a boat so he could pull away from the crowd a little bit. But now Mark tells us that the only people who went with him to Nazareth were his disciples. No throngs, no crowds, no army of demons meeting him. Just Jesus, his disciples, his family, his friends in this small despised city where he grew up. It would be a good thing and an expected thing if the man known as Jesus of Nazareth would be accepted by the people of his hometown. I mean, Now that he's achieved such celebrity status, such notoriety, you would expect his hometown crowd to really be in his corner. Instead, we get this in verse 4, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country among his own relatives and in his own house. Perhaps no place on the planet better illustrated what John wrote in John chapter 1 when he said that Jesus came into his own, but his own received him not. Where would that be any more true than to go to his own hometown, to his family, to his friends? You see, Nazareth was the the place of Joseph. Nazareth was the place of, of Mary. He'd grown up there. But now these people... Wanted no part of him. Now our message today is going to follow the outline I suggested in the title. The the problem of hardened hearts and the peril of hardened hearts. Make no mistake, their hearts were hardened by unbelief. And that's what the text tells us very plainly. He could not do uh, many mighty miracles there because of their unbelief. But it was more than just uh, a casual rejection. It was a settled state of unbelief that had entered into the hearts of people. Their hearts were hardened against Jesus and the truth of the gospel. But a hardened heart may not always be so catastrophic. We'll see this morning as we go through the passage that it's possible for people, saved people, to allow their hearts to grow hardened, calloused, if you will, to the things of God, calloused to the message and the truth of the gospel. And that hardened heart then can affect anybody, Sometimes without them even realizing it. And so we begin this morning by looking at this problem of the hardened heart. He marveled, Jesus said, because the Bible says, because of their unbelief. And the word marvel could also be translated astonished or amazed. I want you to stop for a moment and consider a sin that amazed God. A sin so astonishing. Again, Jesus had grown up here. It was his father's hometown. It was his mother's hometown. It is a place where, as far as the human side of things was concerned, where Jesus' story began. It was in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee, named, there it is, Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you, blessed are you among women. You see, this small town wasn't just where Joseph's business was, and it wasn't just where Mary had grown up, and it wasn't just their ancestral home. This was the place where Gabriel was sent and where he made that announcement that generations of people had lived and died waiting to hear. And of all places, it comes in Nazareth. I'm sure they were all expecting it to be in Bethlehem, but you know God has an amazing way of doing the unexpected. He brings it all the way to Nazareth, this despised city, and there's Mary here of all places. It was their moment to shine, if you will. To be blessed and favored. In fact, that's exactly how Gabriel introduced the subject. uh, To Mary, you're highly favored. What a blessing has been bestowed upon you. So that the first people who got to hear about this incredible story were right there in Nazareth. This was... Such a small town that Jesus no doubt knew everybody there. I mean, he had grown up there all of his life. He was kin to a lot of people there. Between Joseph's family and Mary's side of the family, a lot of kinfolk around. A lot has happened since Jesus went there the first time and they had rejected him so callously, so terribly, and even tried to kill him. I mean, think of all the miracles that's happened. I mean, just miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And they had heard about this. That's probably why they invited him to speak again when they saw that he and his disciples showed up uh, that Saturday morning so long ago uh, to worship there in the synagogue. And as he spoke and began to teach them, the Bible says they were offended at him. It's amazing even after all this time, when you look at this story and you think about how it's played out, how could it be that in this place, of all places, that their hearts could be hardened to the truth of Jesus Christ? How could this happen? They'd seen so much of Jesus. They'd been privy to so many things. They'd heard about the miracles. They'd heard Him preach. How could his own hometown and his own family reject him? The Old Testament gives us an example of how this could happen. It goes back to the time, and just hang with me, I don't want to throw you a curveball today. It's just a, a marvelous Old Testament kind of illustration. It goes back to the dark days of the judges and the... Eli, who had such a failed ministry as a judge, his, his sons were just allowed to run wild. And Eli knew what they were doing and let them do it. And it ended up in a battle. They brought the ark to the battle thinking they'd win it. And instead the Philistines took the ark and all of the armies of Israel was routed. It was a terrible, dark, disgraceful time. Uh, the Philistines got a hold of the ark, and they didn't know what to do with it. And, of course, they figured out real quickly they didn't want to keep it around anymore. And All their crops started dying. Their animals started dying. Their kids started up. People started getting sick. I mean, it was a terrible thing. They said, man, we've got to send this back. They kept it seven months. I'm surprised they kept it seven days after all that happened. They took it back to the home of a man named Abinadab. And it would stay there for over 40 years. It would stay 40 years in the home of Abinadab. It would take King David's ascendance to the throne, and one of the first items then that he decided to do was to bring the ark from the home of Abinadab to the city of David to a tabernacle, he said, that he had prepared there for it. And so they built a new cart. Nothing had ever been put on the cart before, and they sent it in, and and, uh, Abinadab's two sons, one of whom was Uzzah, was... Uh, charged with the task then of driving the cart and moving it. Along the way, the Bible says, the ark uh, began to shift and stumble. The the oxen that was pulling it stumbled, 1 Chronicles chapter 13 and verse 9, and Uzzah reached out and grabbed the ark, and God killed him. It's right there. The anger of the Lord was kindled, actually you can see it there, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him because he put his hand to the ark. Now why was God so angry with Uzzah? Even David was amazed at what happened, that God had killed him for doing something that seemingly needed to be done. But I think we get a clue of what was going on when we understand that Uzzah was a son of Abinadab. Which meant he had grown up with the ark in his house almost his whole life. Where once the ark was in a sacred place called the Holy of Holies. Where once it was only brought out on special occasions. Whole generations of God's people had lived and died and never seen the ark of the covenant. The word ark means box. It was box shaped. It was covered inside and outside with gold. On the top was the mercy seat formed by cherubims whose wings came together like this and formed a, a seat. It would be sprinkled with blood on the day of atonement. The blood That was shed as a symbol of Jesus Christ and His Word. God said, There I'll meet with you. It's a precious, holy thing. But after 40 years, I think Uzzah had lost his reverence for the ark. And now it was just a box. Whatever was going on was in his heart because it wasn't what he was doing. I mean, his brother was up there driving the cart. God didn't kill him. He killed Uzzah. Whatever was going on was in his heart. Something he did was done for the wrong reason. It's the only thing that makes sense to me. was that he had lost somehow his reverence for the ark. You see, to Uzzah, the ark was just a box. And to the people of Nazareth, Jesus was just a boy. Somehow, after spending at least 25 years watching Jesus grow up and watching him interact with his brothers and the other children in the community, watching him uh, work in the carpenter shop, there was something about all of that that their familiarity had bred irreverence, which in fact then turned to a hardened heart. You know, this can happen to us. If we somehow begin to treat worship, we begin to treat the preaching of God's Word, we begin to treat the Lord's house, the Lord's work, and the Lord's workers as if they're just not much to worry about. If we get up on a Sunday morning and come into God's house without feeling blessed, my, what a blessing we have. To come into this place and sing praises to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. To hear His Word preached and proclaimed and taught in our classes. So that we study it and we sing and we pray together. If we somehow lose sight of how blessed we are. If we somehow can sit Sunday after Sunday dried and unmoved the preaching of the gospel truth of Jesus Christ, and without even knowing it, we may be allowing our familiarity to breed indifference in our hearts. If it happens to us, I I can tell you where it's going to end up. Uh, You see, the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ begins to sound like old news to us. Uh, As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we never outgrow our need for the truth of the gospel. It is the truth of the gospel that provides us with an anchor for our soul. In a howling windstorm of the world gone mad, what we need is we need that anchor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What the writer of the book of Hebrews says is that hope that is an anchor that enters into within the veil that is both sure and steadfast. We have an anchor that keeps a soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll fast into the rock that cannot be moved, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. We need the preaching of the gospel. What else would we do? I'm preaching the gospel of Mark. If I didn't preach the gospel going through the gospel of Mark, folk, I'd have to make something up. And I promise you, I'm not going to do that. There's too much of that going on in our world already. God help us if we let our hearts grow cold and callous to the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need it. We need to hear it. We need to hear it regularly. That's uh, the driving force behind this whole series of messages is to remind us of who Jesus is and what He has done and what He is doing. In our world and what he's going to do. It's all tied to the truth of the gospel. If we let the gospel become old news to us. It won't be long till we'll be going to look for somebody with some new revelation. Some new insight. Not realizing that what we really need is the old, old story of Jesus and his love. So if there's a problem of hardened hearts, and there is. They had it in Nazareth of all places and of all people. The people who grew up and spent all that time, 25 years they had spent with Jesus. Of all people, they should have been able to connect the dots. To see what he was doing and what he was preaching and say, yep. Yeah. And that brings us folks, then to the second problem, or the second part of this message rather, the problem of the hardened hearts. But then there's the peril, the danger of it. And we see this spelled out very plainly for us. Verse 5 says that Jesus could do no mighty work there. Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I mean, (laughs) what kind of ministry, folk, had Jesus had when uh, the healing of the sick became almost routine? He didn't do any mighty miracles there. No mighty works there. I mean, compared to casting out Demons and healing a woman that just touched the hem of his garment and raising the dead and commanding the sea and the winds to be still. All he did in Nazareth was heal a few sick people. What more could he do there than what he had done? What more could he say than what he had said? One writer defined this as being overexposed and unimpressed. And yes, I've used that title a time or two myself. They'd seen enough truth and heard enough gospel to save them a hundred times over if such a thing were possible. Another thousand miracles and a few mighty works sprinkled in was not going to make any difference and Jesus knew it. I shudder to think. There might be somebody in this building today or somebody watching from home wherever you are who might be in that same situation. You've sat through enough gospel preaching already that you could have been saved a hundred times. You've heard the gospel again and again and again and again and again. And now you're hearing it Again. And I shudder to think you're going to do the same thing today that you've done how many more times before? One time it'll be your last time. I pray that time never comes. Oh, listen. The peril of a hardened heart. It wasn't altogether certain what this was going to be. Some of these people would believe on him after his resurrection. Most notably, his half-brothers, James and the guy we know as Jude. to called Judas in this passage, but he's the writer of the book of Jude and, and uh, also the writer of the book of James. They were saved after the resurrection. And we don't know how many other of Jesus' family and friends might have been saved after the resurrection. I mean, they watched Jesus die. They saw Him crucified by the Romans, some of them did. Saw it from afar, and if there's one thing the Romans knew how to do, is they knew how to kill people. I mean, this old theory that Jesus just fainted, that's absurd. Listen, folks, they jabbed a spear into His heart so that it, uh, the water and blood came gushing out of it. He was dead. And they knew he was dead. The Romans knew he was dead. His family knew he was dead. They took him out and buried him. And then three days later, he showed up at the family reunion. Now that will get your attention. He appeared to James, the Bible says. Called him out by name to James, his brother James. How would you like to have been at that meeting? What a time. I was kidding a little bit when I said family reunion. We don't know about that. We don't know how many of them came to believe on Jesus after the resurrection. But we do know that they had seen all of this and heard all of this. And they were offended about what he did. You see, they had seen so much. They had heard so much. And really there was only one explanation for it all. And there they are, they're talking about, well, isn't this the carpenter, is this married? But really there was only one explanation, and that is that Jesus was the Son of God. But they, they didn't see that. And so the first thing we see then, that the peril, the danger of unbelief, is that unbelief blinds people's eyes to the truth. I might say the obvious truth. But instead makes them believe something that is an obvious lie. They are blinded to the obvious truth but then believe an obvious lie. We see this play out in our world today. The fact of the matter is, you know what? as I do, that multitudes of people in America are turning their back on God, turning their back on the Bible, turning their back on Jesus Christ, rejecting completely the truth of Scripture so that they are blinded then To the obvious truth. But then they start to believe things that are obviously lies. I mean you take something as obvious as gender. And nothing could be more obvious than that. And yet people blind themselves to what is obviously true. In order to believe in something that is obviously not true. I think about the matters of creation. Uh, The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. The whole creation declares the glory of God. The very fact that the creation exists demands that there is a creator. And even more, the existence of life. Life does not spontaneously create itself. We know that. It's not possible. And so the very existence of life cries out that somebody Gave that life. Somebody created that life. And the Bible of course tells us who that is. In him that's Jesus was life. And this life is a light of men. The very existence of life. Is crying out the truth. There is a creator God. But Of course men are blind to that. But they'll believe. That life has spontaneously generated itself. That the universe generated itself. Even though they know, it's not. listen, I could go on and on and on, but I don't have to. I bring up a couple of things just to make the point. Once the truth of Scripture, the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel is rejected, then what it does is it makes people blind to the obvious truth, but then it makes them believe things that are obviously not true. Second peril of Unbelief, hardened hearts, as it closes people off to the spiritual realm, and you'll see it as Jesus appeared there in verse two and began to teach them. They're asking, "Where did this man get these things? By what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary?" They didn't say the son of Joseph, the son of Mary. They'd been saying that a long time. The brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. They were offended. You'll notice they never tried to deny the mighty miracles that Jesus had done. I mean, think about it. Uh, he had healed so many people. Some of them with congenital birth defects. Some of them that didn't have arms or legs. And, and suddenly those legs grow out and they're able to use them. I mean, there was no way they could deny these miracles. They had heard about Jairus' daughter. There were witnesses there who were already crying and wailing. We saw last week at the grave. They knew that these things had happened. There was no way they could deny them. They didn't even try. They would have readily talked to Jesus about fixing their chairs or building them another cart or fixing their wheel or the yoke on their oxen. All the things that were made out of wood, that's what the carpenters worked on. And I've got a new table. I want my wife a new table. Jesus, can you help me out as long as you're in town? They would have gladly talked about that. That was the first thing they said. This is a carpenter. And by being blind to the spiritual folk, they were also, we understand it, they were blind to the supernatural. They were so bound up in the natural. All they could think about was what we could do with their hands and head. I mean, Jesus a good carpenter, best one we ever had. They'd talk about that. But they were blind to the supernatural, the spiritual. Closed off to that completely. This happens in our world today. As people reject God, and if they, they believe in Him at all, they will change who He is into an image more acceptable to Him. They may claim to continue the Bible, but the fact is they'll take out the parts they don't like. They'll be like Thomas Jefferson who made his own copy of the Bible, and, or the Gospel of John took out all the miracles because he didn't like those. Uh, check it out. Yeah, Thomas Jefferson did that. You see, unbelief blinds people to what the spiritual realm can do. (laughs) You see, it's in the spiritual realm that angels show up in little villages called Nazareth and virgin girls give birth or get pregnant and give birth because what is in her is of the Holy Ghost. And what is in her then is the Son of God. In the supernatural world, shepherd boys become kings. In the supernatural, spiritual world, God changes men and women, boys and girls for all eternity. But unbelief binds people in a prison of the natural. All they can see is cause and effect. They could see the carpenter, but not the Christ. They could see Mary's son, but not God's son. And so the first peril of unbelief is it makes people blind to the truth, but then it makes them believe things that are obviously not true. Uh, It it, it binds them to the natural and closes them off to the spiritual, to the supernatural world. Then the last thing, the peril of unbelief is that it creates hostility toward Jesus. Specifically, notice now, toward Jesus. They were offended at Him. I've been somewhat amazed myself over the last 10 to 15 years to see the growing acceptance of Islam and the followers of Islam in our country. To see how that they've been revered and accepted and admired and held up. I don't know what is going to happen in the near future. I would have thought we would have turned away from it long ago, but we haven't. Not only is there growing acceptance toward the followers of Islam, but also toward other religions and even toward those who have a secular religion. They deny that. But they are trusting the government to fix everything and provide for everything. They're they're trusting in science to fix everything. If that's not a religion, I don't know what a religion is. Godless communism and godless socialism are revered today so that our entire heritage of a Judeo-Christian ethic is now being declared racist, suppressive, oppressive, and in fact the Bible is often declared the veritable mother of all evils. What you and I need to understand today is this is nothing new they were offended at Jesus Christ why were they offended at him because they did not believe that's what a hard hearts hardened hearts does to people it causes them then to be offended toward the truth offended by Jesus Christ offended by the message of scripture so that they don't just harden their hearts but they're offended they get mad Obviously, Jesus faced that. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 11, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross, he said, has ceased. The offense of the cross, the offense of the gospel. Why were they offended at Jesus? Because, you see, in order to believe on Jesus, they were going to have to turn loose of what they had believed on before. They knew that. And that is still the way it is. You see Jesus Christ gives us a simple message I am the way, the truth, and the life and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is only one way to have our sins forgiven, to have the assurance of heaven and that is by kneeling before the old rugged cross of Jesus Christ and believing on Him. And you can find out that's the truth today if you will simply understand that Jesus died but He didn't stay dead. He was buried but He didn't stay buried. He rose again and He gives in the incredible message. Whoever believes in me should not perish but have everlasting life. And that'll happen to you right now if you'll do that. Whether you're in this building or somewhere else, maybe some of you are between here and Alma somewhere. I don't know, down I 40. Coming on. But you're listening in. And I want you to know that the power of the gospel can find you wherever you are. Wherever you are. But the offense of the cross and the offense of the gospel is just as real today as it has ever been. And it was real in the first century as well. It comes because Jesus doesn't say, I'm a good way. But Jesus said, I'm the only way. And to come to God... There is no other way, no other name given among men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus. And of course, the offense of the cross continues because, listen, this world is not through with Jesus Christ. He's coming again. And uh, we're anticipating that just like they were in their day. But oh, how tragic it would be if we allowed our hearts to get hard, if we... Allowed unbelief to come in a little bit and we found ourselves going off and chasing this and chasing that because we'd thrown off our moorings, broken free from that old time gospel message and gospel truth. Don't let that happen to you today. Don't go out of this building saying no to Jesus who said yes to the cross for you.